be looking at Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 18. And Paul has been exhorting the church throughout this book to resemble Jesus, to walk in Christ-like character. He, we saw last week how <clears throat> he exhorted even into the home and the different roles that are present in the home to resemble Jesus. And I believe this theme continues as he closes the book, as he has his final comments here to the Colossians. That theme to resemble Jesus continues. You know, when I leave the house every morning, and this has been the case for as long as I can remember, Charlotte says something to me before I leave. Now, we could have talked during the morning or whatever it is, but when I walk out that door, the last thing she says to me is, be careful. Now, you know, I'm almost 68 years old. I've been careful all my life. I've been driving for over 50 years and have only had one accident, and that wasn't my fault. So she knows I'm careful. Well, why does she do that? She does that because she loves me. And she wants on the forefront of my mind when I leave her to understand what's important to her is her care for me. So she says, be careful. So it's almost become a joke between us. I'll look at her. Be careful. But I do. I leave with that on the forefront of my mind. And I believe that that's what Paul is doing as he concludes this letter. As we look at the majority of chapter 4. Is he is wanting this church to leave with his final thoughts on the forefront of his or their minds as they hear this letter and then they leave. So what is Paul interested in, in them bringing to the front? Aware of as they leave. As Charlotte would tell me, be careful. What is Paul telling the church? And I believe it's these three things. I think he's saying, church, remember to pray. In church, remember to share the gospel. In church, remember to appreciate each other. I think those are the things as we see this that Paul's wanting them to leave well aware of, prepared for, as they walk into the world. But let's read the text. Follow along with me. I'll, beginning, I'll be beginning in verse 2, <clears throat> chapter 4. It says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us. Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. 
and with him Onismius, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And, and say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Please pray with me. Father, as we open your word today, It is our joy and privilege to read your words. And Lord, as the one that's designated to preach your word today, I ask your grace. I ask your help. Lord, to communicate clearly the truths from your word. Father, and as a congregation of your people here, we ask that you would use your word to instruct us and that we would walk in a way that more clearly resembles Jesus in the days to come. Father, be with us. In your name we pray. Amen. So those three things that I think Paul is touching on in this chapter that he's wanting them to remember are my three points today. The first point is remember to pray. As he begins in verse 2, Continue steadfastly in prayer is how he states that. He begins with their personal relationship of what he wants them to remember. First, their relationship with the Lord. And in their relationship with the Lord, he starts with prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Interestingly interestingly enough, he doesn't say, begin to pray. Why? Why? Because Paul is addressing the Christians, the Colossian church. It's filled with believers, and believers pray. See, Paul is addressing the the church, and he's saying, continue steadfastly in prayer. If you're saved, you pray. Now maybe... You don't pray as regularly as you'd like. Maybe your prayers aren't lengthy. Maybe there are times and seasons in your life you pray more than you pray now. But if you're a believer, you pray. And Paul is encouraging them. And he's saying, continue. Continue steadfastly in prayer. That's where he begins. He wants that on the forefront of their minds. As he ends this letter, and as they leave from the reading of this letter, 
He wants them to see that prayer is important. And the terminology he uses, continue steadfastly in prayer, or remain constant in prayer, faithful in prayer, or even be devoted to prayer. See that connotation. All of these point to the meaning of the text. And this particular terminology is used six times in the Bible in referring to prayer. Let me give you three illustrations. In Acts 1.14, after the ascension of Jesus, while the disciples were waiting in Jerusalem for the outpouring of the Spirit, it says, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. In Acts 2.42, right after Pentecost, they continually devoting, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayer, and to prayer. And then Paul writes in Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be devoted in prayer. See, this is describing what Paul's encouraging the Colossians to do. That there be an ongoing commitment and experience in prayer. That he, wants, he wants them to see that not only as important, but where he's wanting to help them in their relationship with the Lord. See, if something is to continue, if it's steadfast, if it's regular, that means it's not haphazard, right? It means you take steps to make it a regular part of your life. When we look at being devoted to prayer. And if you're like me, as I look at my life, my prayer life's not where I'd like for it to be. I don't know that that would describe me. I want it to. As I look at my life, what can I say I'm devoted to? It's something that is continuing steadfastly in my life. Well, I would say eating fits that bill. Rarely a day goes by where a mealtime goes by unnoticed. I take time to eat. I plan time to eat. I look forward to meals. So I, I can say, yeah, I'm continually devoted to food. No, that's not a bad thing. But why is that? And what is the difference that my devotion to prayer, where it wouldn't fall in the same category? It wouldn't look the same way. See, eating's an easy example because we see an immediate benefit from it. We're hungry, we eat, we're satisfied. Now, prayer's not always that way, is it? We're well aware of our needs our trials, our challenges, our physical needs. And so are the Colossians. However, we cannot connect such a direct line between our needs and our answered prayer. When that connection gets too distant or too strained, we can get discouraged. And our prayer can be described by something less than continually steadfastly. See, I would agree with the author Sam Storm who said, the easiest thing about prayer is quitting. I think the Apostle Paul would agree. And possibly that is why he begins here with this encouragement to them 
about prayer, to continue steadfastly in prayer, or be devoted to prayer, because it's far too easy to quit. And we don't quit forever. We quit the regularity. We quit the continue steadfastly. We, conti- we quit the devotion to it. Why? Well, I believe it's because that we weigh our experience with prayer, and that carries a deeper weight than what God's truth and promises about prayer are. See, we measure what our recent experience has been from expressing our need to seeing God's answer. And I believe the truth of who God is and what God says about prayer needs to carry the day. When we become discouraged, not seeing specific answers to prayer, we can quit. When we begin to feel that we talk, but no one seems to be listening, that since we're alone, we can quit. We can think that our prayers are ineffective when we see few answers, and we can quit. We can feel like when we pray, our prayers seem redundant, the same so we can quit. But the reasons for quitting, they're typically attached to what we feel our prayers are accomplishing, not with the truth and the reality of the effectiveness of our prayer based on God's Word and based on what God says about prayer. And I think that's what Paul's wanting to help them to see. No, no, no. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Continue. You see, if we look and see what God says about prayer, that can build our faith and the trust that we have and override our experience. God says in Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we have yet without sin. Let us therefore with what? Confidence. Do what? Draw near the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That's prayer. That's God, the Almighty God, inviting us to pray. Continue. See this. You see, God also says in 1 Peter 3.12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. God is saying that. God is saying He hears your prayer. Whether you feel like He does or not, He hears your prayer. God says in Matthew 6.8, For the Father knows what you need before you ask Him. God knows your needs. God says in Romans 8, verse, chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus Christ is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You hear those truths about God, about God and prayer, about the effectiveness of your prayer. And I think Paul's wanting the Colossians to not rest on their experience, rest on the truth of God who God is. And I would encourage us in that same way. I would encourage myself when I feel challenged to look at what God says about prayer and believe that because it's far too easy to quit. It's far too easy to put it on pause. 
It's far too easy to let other things press in. It's far too easy to be devoted to other things and not hold prayer the highest in the list of what to be devoted to, to continue steadfastly in. But when we see the power of God expressed in continual, consistent prayer, it can revolutionize our prayer time with God. Let me share this quote from Charles Spurgeon. It says, it's, It is not possible that God could refuse to answer prayer. It is possible for him to bid the sun stand still and the moon to stay your monthly march. It is possible for him to bid the waves freeze in the sea. Possible for him to quench the light of the stars in eternal darkness. But it's not possible for him to refuse to hear prayer, which is based upon his promise and offered in faith. He can reverse nature, but he cannot reverse his own nature. And he must do this before he can forbear to hear and answer prayer. That's our God. In the forefront of their minds, continue to pray. And then he talks about prayer. He goes on in verse 2. It says, being watchful in it. He begins to talk about the content of the prayer. Paul now includes instruction about our prayer. He's encouraging the Christians to be watchful. Now this means a couple of things. One is be watchful, be alert to where we don't drift off into daydreaming or fall asleep, which we've all done. Or even as Paul in the garden was encouraging his, his Peter, James, and John with him, is to alert and pray, and they fell asleep. So there's that degree here that Paul's wanting them to see in their prayer, be alert. Be watchful. But there's something more. There's another dimension to this. It's a realization as we pray that we're praying to the Almighty Creator. We're praying to God. We're anticipating the return of the King. It helps. Prayer helps remind us that we're not home while we're here on earth. The world is not our home. Heaven is our home. Prayer is a constant reminder that we are citizens of heaven and our kingdom is coming. Prayer with this watchful attention and awareness helps us to realize that we're speaking to the ruler of all things. It helps us to see a greater power and effect to our prayer. We can all be overwhelmed by the world around us, the overall movement of our society away from God. We see that in the daily news. Or the eroding condition of our religious liberties as we see in society. Or the uncertainty of the stock market as we approach an election year. See, prayer takes our focus off of today's trials and world around us and helps us to look into the face of Jesus and helps us to see us in relationship to the world, that we are citizens of heaven. It's a reminder that we're children of God, purchased by the blood of Christ, that we will live with him for all eternity. This brings 
It helps us in our perspective on our lives. It helps us to build faith. Our prayer itself helps us to focus beyond today into the reality of our eternal hope. That focus, that watchfulness, encourages our soul. It's like the GPS on your phone. Prayer is like that. After we've used this for so many years, it's hard to believe I can ever get anywhere without it. But that GPS tells you where you are, the little blue dot, and then where you're going. Prayer tells us where we are and that we're not citizens here. And where we're going is to be with the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the very one who is hearing our prayer, the very one we're encouraged to pray continually. Be watchful. So as Paul's wanting this Colossian church, as he concludes this letter, to keep in the forefront of their minds, is remember to pray. Being watchful. And then he adds another element with thanksgiving. You see, Paul didn't want them to walk away from hearing this letter with a list of do's and don'ts and check them off as they live their lives. He wanted them to see what living the Christian life looks like, yes, but he wanted them to have lives that resemble Jesus. He wanted them to ensure that they continue to see the power for them to live for Christ is found in their dependence upon God. Thanksgiving helps us see our dependence on God. Jerry Bridges says, Thanksgiving is an admission of dependence. When we thank God in our prayer, it helps us to be reminded of all that God is doing, all that he's done, of who he is. So as Paul is saying, continue steadfastly in prayer, being alert in it with thanksgiving. It's helping us to see that our dependence is on God. This is the seventh time in this letter that Paul has used gratitude and expressed, encouraged them in gratitude, and three, have a relationship to prayer. Two of them Paul himself used in the very first chapter. Verse 3, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And verse 12 in chapter 1, giving thanks to the Father who, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So he's encouraging us to be thankful, but what does gratitude do? Gratitude changes our focus. We look and we see something beyond our need, onto the things of God, who He is, and what He's done. It helps us to see our dependence upon God. You see, remember, the one who is calling us to pray is the one who is hearing our prayers. He is listening and answering as we pray. We can be thankful to God that he hears us. Remember 1 Peter 3.12? The eye of the Lord is on the righteous and his ear is open to your prayer. Your prayer and my prayer. Prayer is more powerful than what we can understand. 
In fact, in Ephesians 3.20, it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power work within us. Oh, Lord, do we see the power of prayer that can help us to what? To continue steadfastly. Want to be alert. Want to be grateful because of who God is and what He's done. But Paul doesn't stop there. It was simply the encouragement to those in the church. But he didn't ask for prayer himself. We can see in verse 3. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. See, now he's asking for their prayer. Because Paul sees prayer as an essential tool to build the kingdom of God. Paul sees something, prayer as something powerful. May we as well. And what's interesting is he's asking this young church to pray for him in his ministry. He's asking this young church to be with him, partner with him in prayer to build the kingdom. It's a new church. These are young believers. How mature do you need to be in order for your prayers to be effective? You simply need to be saved, and your prayer is effective. They were building the kingdom together. Through their prayer, they were called to build the kingdom Everyone, every believer is mature enough to pray and see their prayers as effective in building the kingdom of God. And I think Paul also wanted to allow them, to encourage them, to invite them to be a part of this so they could see what God's doing and thank God for that and see that they're a part of it. John Piper says this, What this means is that God appointed prayer as the means of finishing a mission that he has promised will certainly be finished. Therefore, we pray. Not because the outcome is uncertain, but because God has promised and cannot fail. Our prayers are the means God has appointed to do what he most certainly will do, finish the great commission and establish his kingdom. And he invites us to be a part of that. Paul invited the Colossians to be a part of that with him. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Being alert in it with thanksgiving. And then he asks for prayers for himself. But then in verse 4, he says something I believe is unexpected. He said that I should make it clear which is how I, should, which is how I ought to speak. Paul shows his own personal dependence on prayer and the prayers of the church for him. He asks to make clear the message, a message that he has given more times than can be counted over his ministry years. He asks their prayer for help for him to make that message clear. Can you see Paul's dependence on prayer? He's asking for them to pray for him, that he might make this message of Christ clear. How many hundreds or thousands of times has he given this message across the known world as he's 
writing inscripturated letters to the churches, but yet he's dependent on prayer. He's asking for their involvement and help to pray for him. This young church, pray for me that I might be clear. You see his confidence in the power of prayer, his dependence on God in prayer? Does anyone be dependent on his experience or his history? But no, his dependence was on prayer. So you can see how Paul is wanting them to catch something. He's wanting the Colossian church as they leave here in this letter. In the forefront of those minds, the first thing is to continue. Don't quit. Continue steadfastly in prayer. And then he goes on in verses 5 and 6. The second point is, church, remember to share the gospel. He says in verse 5, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. <coughs> Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So Paul's now encouraging the church. Something else he wants at the forefront of their minds have an eye towards those unbelievers outside of the church community. He is challenging them to use wisdom, yes, in how they share, but to make the best use of their time in reaching out with the gospel. A good interpretation of that phrase, making the best use of their time, could be to snap up every opportunity that comes to snap up every opportunity that comes. That's an openness that Paul's encouraging them to have towards outsiders. And that could be challenging in the early church, to look for every opportunity, snap up every opportunity that comes. Because in this particular society, reaching out to the world would not always be something that was safe to do due to the persecution that exists from the different pagan idol-worshiping segments, and also the Jewish believers. So persecution could be resting upon that next opportunity. But Paul's not guarding them there. He's encouraging them, pressing forward to snap up every opportunity that comes to reach out with the gospel in a way that's wise, but to reach out with the gospel. You see, and we can, I think, glean from this. All of us can think, well, I'm not an evangelist, but I know an evangelist. I know someone that's always sharing their faith. I'll pray for them and do. But yet, I believe what we can see here is God is encouraging each and every one of us. Just as he's encouraging each and every one to continue steadfastly in prayers and con- He's encouraging each and every one to reach out to outsiders, to snap up every opportunity, to share the gospel with wisdom. There's a hurting world out there that needs what we know and what we understand, the truth of who God is and what He has done, to share it. And I think we want to take that, especially in this season, this holiday season. What does this mean to us? For us to take a fresh look at what snapping up every opportunity as we get into this holiday season, what does that mean for us? 
It's a direction Paul's giving to the Colossians that comes to us as well. And he encourages them to share in a way that is, quote, seasoned with salt. In the ancient world, just like this world, salt provides a benefit. It improves flavor. It makes something more delectable. And so he's saying, share the gospel in a way that is seasoned with salt. Reminds me of the old adage. It says you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. But you can feed him salt to get him thirsty. That's what we want to do. We want to share the gospel in a way that makes someone thirsty to know the Savior we know. It makes someone thirsty to understand and want to know more about Jesus Christ and what He has done and who He is. Every believer is called to do that. And Paul's wanting them to see that that's, that needs to be on the forefront of their minds. Just as Charlotte was saying, be careful. Paul is saying, church, remember to pray. Remember to share the gospel. Remember as you go forward. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Help them out there to see that. To hear that from you. And to see that in you. And then his third point, my third point, I think the third encouragement that Paul has is to remember to appreciate each other. It's an interesting, lengthy section of greeting that he has here at the end of this book. There's ten different people that he addresses. His partnership in the gospel is on display here. As he addresses these individual people, thanking them for their service. He shows his appreciation for those serving beside him. He's expressing gratitude for them. He's acknowledging their service. His love for them is clear. He's helping this new church to see the importance of noticing where others are resembling Jesus as they live their lives. However, this list, he could have had some different designations for some of these folks. He could have said, well, there's two prisoners, there's one slave, and there's one deserter. That's what the world would see. But Paul labeled them as beloved brothers, faithful ministers, comfort to Paul. You see, Paul first saw these people, saw in these people the work of Christ. And that was his focus. That was the source of his encouragement. He first saw the work of Christ in them. Tychicus, he was a beloved brother and a faithful minister. He and Onesimus brought the letters, or the letter to the church in court in um, Colossians, Colossae. I had another C word in my mind that just wouldn't get out there. They were, the, they were the messengers. They brought the letter and would explain it to them. But yet Onesimus, described as a faithful and beloved brother, was also, I believe, the man referenced in the book of Philemon that was a slave to Philemon. 
that stole from him and escaped. And we would think went to Rome to get away and was saved under the ministry of Paul. And now as a believer and now as a Christian. And Paul, as he uses the same predicates as Tychicus and Epaphras, as beloved brother, faithful brother. You see, he's saying that Onesimus, the slave, is to be received the same warm, warm greeting from the Colossian church that would be extended to any Christian. Paul sees God's work in the man and women. And that's where he focuses his encouragement. Also, Aristarchus, Mark, Justice, men that have been a comfort to him. They were men from the circumcision. They were Jewish Christians. Aristarchus was from Thessalonica. His traveler with Paul probably imprisoned with him. The cousin of Barnabas, you see in parentheses there, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. In Acts 15, Mark was the one that separated Paul and Barnabas because he left, he deserted them. And Paul no longer trusted him, no longer wanted him to be a part in spreading the gospel, in ministering. But yet, here's Mark now, His life has changed. And Paul wants to be sure that if this description of Mark as a deserter has gotten to you, it no longer describes him. What describes him is faithful and beloved brother. And welcome him. So Paul's helping them to see how we encourage one another, how we appreciate one another, seeing in one another what Christ has done, how they resemble Christ. We've seen it throughout the book. And he's wanting them to see. And he goes down through the list. Epaphras, a servant of Jesus Christ, the one who quite probably brought the gospel message to the Colossian church. And he's in prison with Paul and striving in prayer for these wonderful people. Luke, the beloved physician. Demas, greet you. Nympha and the church in her house. Greet her. Her hospitality is clear. Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. It was the only one to receive a personal exhortation from Paul. He's described in Philemon as a fellow soldier. See, Paul would see and acknowledge the work of Christ in a Christian's life, which needs to be our first thought for one another as well. And Paul's wanting them to see that in the forefront of their minds. Remember to pray. Remember to share the gospel. And remember to appreciate each other. Look and see where your brothers and sisters resemble Christ and tell them. And maybe their lives in the past were off. But now, Let's encourage them what Christ is doing in their lives. And finally, Paul closes out the letter 
saying this, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So Paul's wanting them to know without a question his authority in writing this letter. This is my letter to you, Colossians. Have the Laodiceans read it. Read their letter. And then Paul prays this. He says, remember my chains. He doesn't ever pray in any of his letters that are written in his imprisonment for him to be, please pray that I be released from prison. He says, remember my chains. A man content with understanding the will of God, but asking for prayer in a situation. Pray for my situation. Pray with where I am. Remember my chains. Then he closes with an intentional benediction. It can seem just like the close of a letter, but I believe it's more than that. I believe it's an intentional benediction when he says, grace be with you. Paul knows that God's grace will sustain the Colossian community. It's by his grace alone that they'll stand. Grace is what we need in order to do what God's called us to do. We need his grace. Paul's final note is for that grace to be ours, to be experienced in our lives. He leaves them with that focus. See, only in grace can we do what God calls us to do. All throughout the letter, he's continually had the Colossians first look to Christ for the grace to change before directing them to any action. He ends the letter with a reminder that this power to change comes from looking to Christ in his grace. He ends the letter, grace be to you. And I believe what he's wanting them to understand is all that's been in this letter to put to death what's earthly in you. Grace to do that, be with you. To put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Compassion, kindness, gentleness, meekness, patience. May God's grace be with you to do that, to go home to a challenging marriage. May God's grace be with you to do that, to go home to sickness or challenge. Go home with God's grace knowing that grace be with you. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Grace be with you to do that to share the gospel with the world, to encourage one another. You see, so today as we walk out looking to Jesus, let on the forefront of your mind be His grace is with you. Church, Let's put in the forefront of our minds as we look forward to a holiday season, a new year. What would God have us through this message, through this text? What would God have us add to our lives? Continue steadfastly in prayer. Spread the gospel. Share the gospel and encourage one another. And if you're here and you're not a believer, 
this grace that we're talking about to do all that God's called us to do can be available to you as well. You must first look to Christ and accept him as your Lord and Savior that he died on the cross for your sin and you can receive his grace. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for the power and the availability. Lord, to pray, knowing that your ear is open to our prayer. Father, we ask you, by your grace and by your mercy, that you will help us to resemble Jesus more and more in our lives. We ask your grace. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.